It was Vince Grandall, my next door neighbor in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, that taught me one of the greatest lessons about life. I was in my driveway one day, and he was in his driveway talking to um, one of his teenage daughters. And she was complaining that life was not going the way she wanted it to. And he looked at her and says, loud enough for me to hear it, and uh, it etched it in my mind. I mean, it wrote it in my soul. He said to her, Lisa, life sucks, then you die. Uh, I thought, wow. I didn't have kids at that point. <laughs> and so I thought, wow, this could be a great, um, a great parenting strategy here, you know, to, to take these you know, teenage kids. Um, but the fact is, life is hard. You know, we've just come through a kind of a joyous time of year, but for some of us, it's not. Uh, Christmas throws us together with family. Some of us like our family. Some of us don't. <laughs> and it's painful when you feel the uh, rituals of life press in so that you are supposed to be around people that you don't even like. You grew up with them. Maybe they gave you a life. But, but there's, there's pain and there's, there's struggle. There's baggage. There's all kinds of baggage that you're lugging through life uh, because of them or because of your relationship with them. And, and life becomes difficult. Um, and so we all come to uh, some points where we, we grab for uh, epitaphs or, or principles uh, that lead us through life. And, and, and many of us, it's, it's like a compass. You know, we'd, we'd all like a road map. You know, I would use the uh, AAA used to have a thing called triptych, and if you know what that is, then you're as old as I am. Um, but but you, you, know, you used to be able to get this little thing from I'm going from uh, I'm going from Kansas City to uh, Detroit, and you if you have a AAA membership, and they send you this little thing, and it's this little crazy little map that we don't need anymore. Um, but but we all want a map, right? We all want a road map for life. Just give me the map. Tell me where it's at. What does it look like? And uh, unfortunately, it's, it's not there. Um, sometimes we, we, we feel like we find pieces of the map, and we stay on it, and then all of a sudden, we get to a spot where there's road construction. And we're thinking, someone didn't tell us about this. All right, now I've got to make a detour. And no longer does my road map work. I, I think that's why Dan Pink wrote the book, um, the power of regret. I'm, I'm not sure about Dan Pink's spirituality. Um, I, I don't know uh, his religious or, or spiritual philosophy or how he puts the world together in a spiritual level, but, but he does sort of bring to the surface uh, uh, an idea for us on this, these next four weeks to understand what does it look like to put on our compass this concept of regret. And at that point, typically, there's a divide. There are some of us who take that no regrets strategy. <laughs> not regretting, not even one letter, okay? <laughs> oh, I could watch that over and over and over. <laughs> uh, 
But, but I mean, he, he's not alone in, in that. Um, you know, there, there are a host of, of uh, celebrities, if I can get my pad to work here, a host of celebrities, Angelina Jolie, Bob Dylan, John Travolta, Tony Robbins, Mr. Positive, Powerful, Walk on Coals, Tony Robbins, um, uh, even someone who's, who's popular um, because of a commercial right now, Slash, <laughs> you know, uh, it's like no regrets, no regrets. And, and the question is, how good of a philosophy is that for life? I mean, how good uh, and how profitable is that? And the fact is, is that the reality is, when you survey people, 99% of human beings identify having regrets in life. 99%. So either they're one percenters or they're lying. Now, the, there are several categories of people who have no regrets. Babies have no regrets. Their brains are not developed enough to have regrets, so no regrets. Um, you know, there's another category uh, of people that, that don't have regrets, and that's are people who have brain damage. If you've been in an accident and your healthy brain was damaged in some way, form, or fashion, then it, it's really difficult for you to have regrets. And then there's only one third category that you might be thinking, okay, this is me, I fit here, and that's sociopaths. <laughs> there, there are a certain... Um, small subset of humans that are so deranged that, that they have absolutely no regrets about the things that they do to people and to themselves and other things. And the rest of us have to come to grips with how do we deal with regrets. Now, there's no doubt that trying to live a life in the future in such a way that we have no regrets, is, is there's something admirable about that. But the fact is, is that all of us have the baggage, and, and how do we deal with these regrets? Well, for the next four weeks, we're going to camp around this idea, and, uh, and Pink divides them into four categories, and today we're going to deal with the first one, that is foundational regrets. Now, I'm going to sort of use a double entendre today. You know what that is, double entendre, for those of you who paid attention in eighth grade English? Uh, you know, it, it's like saying something and meaning two things. And so we're going to foundation. This is going to be a foundation for the series itself because I feel like that there has to be kind of a defense for dealing with regrets because many of us want to take the kind of Lady Macbeth approach to, uh, to regrets. I, I, I don't know if you've ever watched Macbeth or re read how many, no, I don't want to ask that. Um, you know, Macbeth is like this Shakespearean bloodbath. You know, just, I mean, people, are, people die like crazy. And, uh, and um, Miss, uh, Mrs. Macbeth, the Lady Macbeth says, has, has this, this, this famous quote in, in the, uh, the, the, the middle of it that's been quoted. She says, things without remedy should go without regret. What's done 
is done. Now, we've recrafted that, you know. Hey, that's water under the bridge. Let bygones be bygones. I mean, we've got all kinds of ways of, of, of referring to those kinds of things. And, and so it's in the past. Let it go. Don't dwell on it. You know? and, and even some of us who've been around the Bible enough uh, might even grab for a biblical phrase where Paul says in Philippians 3, forgetting that which lies behind and reaching forward. And so we might think of, well, I just got to put it away. But the problem is, I, I don't know about you. Maybe you're better than me, but, but stuffing regrets uh, in a, uh, a bag or a closet or a box or, or even in a barrel and, and, and trying to put those in the past doesn't always work. Uh, they, they somehow seem to surface. And, and they surface at times when I don't really appreciate it. They surface when I don't intend them to. They come up and they influence my behavior, my emotions, and they cause me to sometimes say things and do things and act in ways that I'm having a little channel of loving experience looking at myself going, what the heck is going on here? Why are you doing this? And it's because I've got this stuff that I've buried and I failed to process it. I failed to assimilate it into my life. And there are regrets, things that happen in my life. And, and if I don't assimilate them, then there's a good chance they're going to shape me. You see, I think the, the message that we have to come to grips with is that we don't, we don't have to be captive to our pasts. We've got stuff back there. We all got baggage. And, and if you don't have baggage, you've got another problem. It, we, we have a way as human beings of, of being counterfactual. That is, we, we take a set of facts and then we bring them through our lives. And because oftentimes what drives us is emotion, feeling, we... we we wash those facts with feeling and we put these things up and we create a reality that is counterfactual. It's why we were meant to live in community with one another. We were meant to have people speaking into our lives as we slowly move into isolation. We become more and more counterfactual and, and we lose touch with reality. And the beauty, the texture of life comes when other people are speaking in their lives and can help us stay out of that counterfactual thing. Because the Bible is abundantly clear about you and I. I mean, it, it, it's, it's like not even in question that you and I start out on the wrong side of the bed, if you will, with God. We, we, we start out as his enemies. And, and, and we have the beautiful privilege of becoming his friends. Whether it's Jeremiah, where Jeremiah says the heart of man is deceitfully wicked. Uh, I, he includes women in that too, I think, please. So don't, don't mistake that. 
the, the, the heart of humans are, are, are deceitfully wicked. Or it's Paul in Romans, 10, Romans 3.10 where he starts to, no one seeks after God, no one does good. Now, you know, it's like there's this blanket. I know that, that y- y- you are, are, feel like you're a pretty good person. And I'm not saying you're totally evil. But I'm saying that we start out in a situation where if we're trying to earn God's favor, we're struggling in the wrong battle. And regrets oftentimes fuel that fire. Regrets are, are the things that, that actually are the, the, the fuel that stoke the fire and, and cause it to burn. And if we could come to grips with understanding regrets, it, it might help us because I think Jesus gives us that incredible judo move about regrets that Dan Pink really doesn't. Uh, Jesus gives us this, this, this really um, amazing way to, to handle our regrets. And, and it's bound in, in both his works and his words. And when we assimilate that into our lives... We have no fear of our regrets. We can process it. We can assimilate them into our lives in such a way that, that we learn from them. And we're not captive to our past, but we're shaped. We're shaped by our experiences. One of my mentors in life oftentimes would say, you know, people say that experience is the best teacher. And he would say, don't believe that lie. Don't believe that lie. Because evaluated experience is the best teacher. Evaluated experience is the best teacher. And that's how we deal with our regrets. That's how we come to grips with this idea of what it means to to build on our regrets. Well, the first uh, category of regrets that that Pink talks about is, is foundational regrets. And he did this survey, world survey. Uh, gobs of people filled out this survey. You saw some of the quotes uh, on the screen. Um, and I would recommend the book. It's a great, great read. Um, and in this first category, it, it's like these regrets that relate to um, things that we wish we had done that we didn't. Um, you know, we, we didn't make an investment. We didn't, like, I, I mean, look, we could just start and say, you know, how many of you didn't study in school like you wish you should have? You know? Many of us are that way. How many of you wish you would have taken better care of your bodies than you have? Okay, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, many of us made resolutions, you know, we're, we're going to start now and we're going to lose weight this year. When December 31st comes around, 2023, I'm going to be 20, 25, 30, 50 pounds lighter, right? Um, if There are all kinds of things like that, even in the spiritual world. You're all adults in here, reasonably so. <laughs> you got a problem with that girl? but the 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 fact is is that in the spiritual world oftentimes we just float along and there's no investment 
You know, we talk about this relationship, this, this kind of growing relationship between ourselves and God. And, you know, if you had a penny for every time I had mentioned the word, get your fingerprints on the Bible, you would be rich, right? And, and, and one of, you know, maybe, maybe you, you've, if you've been around here long enough, you've picked up on something, because my educational philosophy is that people need to be reminded more than they need to be informed. Uh, and if you have teenagers, you know what I'm talking about, you know. Uh, it, it's just that, that life and the satisfaction in life, finding the holy grail of life is not found in a lot of different things. It's found in a few, just a few things. And getting those few things in front of us and investing in those few things is really important. You know, there's the longitudinal study done at Harvard, uh, done uh, over some 80 years of, of starting with infants and following these uh, people until they were into their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And, and um, the, the, the leader in, in this era of the study um, was asked, hey, bottom line it for us. You, you've, you've studied these people from all walks of life, uh, all shapes and sizes, all colors, uh, all you know, economic levels. You've studied all of these people, and, and you have you know, questioned them and, and done medical tests on them and all kinds of stuff for all these years. What's the bottom line? And he said, happiness in life is found in love. Full stop. Happiness in life is found in love, full stop. Life is about a few things, not about many things. And oftentimes, in this world we live in, we have a lot of things, a lot of things to be distracted by. Uh, not the least of which is this little device here. You know, it's like, I'm amazed at how um, I can waste time with my thumb. That's how I scroll. Maybe you don't scroll with your thumb. Maybe you scroll somewhere else. But, but uh, I mean, there's no doubt, there's a lot of really wonderful things here. But, but there's a lot of distraction in life and sort of honing it down to what should I invest in. Uh, you know the word, uh, anybody know who invented dynamite? Clint Eastwood. You know, that's a phenomenal guess. Totally wrong, but phenomenal. <laughs> Anybody know who invented dynamite? Alfred Nobel. Alfred Nobel, who's known for what? Nobel Peace Prize, right? You know how it got that way? Alfred Nobel had a gift that most of us will never get. Alfred Nobel woke up one morning, opened the newspaper, and read his obituary. The paper had heard that a Nobel died. Somehow they got it switched. It was his brother who actually died. But as papers usually do for people that are prominent, they have uh, a lot of stuff written already waiting to just be shoved out. Um, so they'll be right on top of it. And so Alfred Nobel woke up in a morning and read the headline, The Merchant of Death is Dead. 
And it went on to talk about he had invested his life in trying to figure out how to kill people in more efficient ways by the invention of dynamite and explosives. And there he was reading his obituary, reading it and wondering, you know, what kind of legacy am I leaving in this world? And from that moment on, he took all of that wealth that he had gained from inventing dynamite and began to invest it in what we now know as the Nobel Awards. It's not just the Peace Prize, but there are a bunch of other things that, that go out in science and education and all kinds of stuff. And he began to change his legacy. You and I won't get that. I, I kind of got it one day. I like to walk in the spring and the fall when it's warm outside, or relatively warm, and I'm, <clears throat> I don't live far from one of the city cemeteries in Liberty, and I'm walking through the city cemetery, and, and it's, it's interesting to, to think about all these gravestones and who they are and their names and to watch the families and stuff like that. And so I'm just <clears throat> mindlessly wandering through and all of a sudden I look down and I see a gravestone that says Roy Moran. I mean, it was like, holy crap. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't me. Um, <laughs> but some other guy with my name. <laughs> um, and it was one of those moments where you, you, you think, wow, one day... There's going to be a marker or a mark in history where that represents me. Born November 12, 1954. Dash died who knows when. What does the dash mean? That's the real question. When you, you see someone's life like it, what does the dash mean? What, what are the daily investments in preparation, in study, in discipline, in, in those kinds of things? What, what are the daily preparations it takes for us to get to where we want to be? You know, there's a famous saying, old saying, I, I, I use it more often than I should probably, but you know, when's the best time to plant a tree? Yeah, 20 years ago. <laughs> or today. I, I, I guess I probably say that because about eight or 10 years ago, my wife wanted trees in this little slot between our house on the south side. And and so she went to the nursery uh, and uh, bought some trees. Her mother gave her some trees for, for her birthday. And so we went to the nursery and, you know, tree farm or whatever you call it. And, they, and we got three trees and we planted these three trees. They were supposed to be trees that, that grew about, you know, 12 to 15 feet tall and were real bushy and, and, and only maybe 15 to 30 feet wide. And so they would, you know. And so we planted them. Unbeknownst to us, um, whatever they told us we planted, we did not plant. Because they're 60 feet high now. And they get like, they touch both houses in between. They're a nightmare 
to, to trim back because they, they, they grow. But, but eight years ago, ten years ago, they were just little seedlings and they, they grew. There are things in your life that are like that, that if you invest now, they will make a difference in the future. Most of us have got things that we regret. We regret not investing in relationships, and so marriages fail. We regret not investing financially and not being able to look forward in the future to the power of compound interest. which Albert Einstein said was the greatest force on the face of the earth. When things begin to compound, money compounds, money makes money. And back when we were 18, 19, 20, 22 years old and we had the opportunity to start putting things away and, and saving, things were more important than, than saving. We'll do that later. I don't know how many people I've talked to that they're 50 years old and they're just now starting to try to save for retirement. That's a pretty fast run up a big hill. And many of us, many of us find, us, find ourselves in the same space in many different ways. But Jesus comes along and develops a movement he draws to himself uh, a, a bunch of, of men and their families. Uh, we call them apostles now, but, but they were just his early disciples. And they began to apprentice themselves to Jesus and to learn, to obey all that he was teaching them. And when he was killed, and then he got resurrected, and those men got engaged in what Jesus was about, this thing began to spread all over. You know, I heard the words doubting Thomas in the, the drama this morning. I always feel for people named Thomas when I hear that. <laughs> you know, it's like, man, you know, um, it, it's, it, it's, it's the same thing for John, for those of you named John. You know, it's like, you know, we always use the, that terminology, you know, in a, in, <laughs> anyway, um, you know, it's like we, these things hang on. For some odd reason, they hang on. Uh, but Thomas, one of those men, took this message of Jesus to the continent of India. And, and, and he was responsible. He had this one moment in his life where he did doubt, he did say, you know, hey, I'm not going to believe this until I touch the, the wounds of Jesus. Because I saw him on the cross. He was deader than a doornail. I know that they put him in that tomb. And you're telling me he's alive. I'm not going to change my thinking or my belief until I see him. And so Jesus shows up and shows him. And, and he has that moment in his life. You see, Jesus was helping his early followers understand the great judo move about regret. And, and it was, it's found and written down by one of those followers, John, in one of the small letters that he wrote. There's a guy named John that wrote four 
of the letters or four of the books in the second half of the Bible. One's the story of Jesus' life, and then he has these three smaller ones referred to as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in that first letter that he wrote, uh, he, he describes the lesson or the, the message that Jesus gave when Thomas, even though we still mark him by that moment of, of great failure, Jesus gives us the, the great eraser that, that brings us into another way, that the kind of thing where we may think of Thomas as doubting Thomas, but he didn't think of himself as doubting Thomas. He drew his identity from being a son of the Most High God. And he took that message all the way to India. In 1 John 5, John says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we, quote, <clears throat> excuse me, if we claim we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. So John is speaking here to the kind of hypocritical mind, that, that, that mind that says, I can say one thing and do another. He says, no, that doesn't cut ice with God. That's, that's, that's not what, what, what God's about. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So Jesus' death on the cross was for a purpose. It was the sacrificial lamb that, that you know, and, and it's counterintuitive, it's crazy that, that we think of blood as a washing agent. It's a metaphor, but it, it, it washes away all of that regret. And it actually gives us the freedom to look regret in the face. Look it straight in the face and, and understand what happened and why it happened and how it could not happen again if I wanted it to. We could be free in the, in the space with regret and know that it has no power over us because the shame that might come from acknowledging the re regret, the guilt that might come from acknowledging the regret can be washed away. Jesus took that. He took it upon himself. And then John goes on to sort of, as I'm thinking about how he's arguing here and how he's uh, working, he's thinking about people reading this. He says, we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. <coughs> Excuse me. If... If we're self-deceived, and, and the reality is, in dealing with regret, one of the very first things, the defenses of regret is denial. That's just not true. That just didn't happen. In, in, in the face of absolutely, you know, astounding evidence, we as humans, no, that's not true. <laughs> didn't happen, you know? It's, 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 it's amazing, but John is saying, look, look, that, that, that's irrational. It's not godly because we aren't without 
sin. I mean, you and I are full of regrets. And in fact, I would say that regret makes us human. It's when we acknowledge our regret that we discover how human we really are. Uh, Maybe you were paying attention if you ever took a philosophy class about the, the philosopher who said, I think, therefore I am, right? Anybody know who said that? Neither do I. <laughs> I think it was Descartes, but, you know, who knows. Uh, so, a thousand years before that, a thousand years before, before that was, was penned, there was another guy by the name of Augustine. Augustine was a, a great, great follower of Jesus. He was a, 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 a decrepit individual before he met Jesus. He was a womanizer. He, he, was, just, he was just evil. And, and then he met Jesus and his life turned around and he became a great follower of Jesus, penned a lot of incredible stuff. Augustine said, I err, therefore I'm human. That was the basis of, of crafting a new statement a thousand years later. It was really closer to the truth of the Bible. I err. Therefore, I'm human. You see, because we can acknowledge our regret, we acknowledge that we, in fact, are human. You and I have great opportunity to be free agents. We can choose all that we want. And we can leave here, and we can go out, and we can, you know, whatever you want to do, you can do it. You know, we're free to choose. But we can never be free of the consequences of our choices. That's one freedom that we don't have. We will always have to live with the consequences of our choices. And so John is helping us understand that we all have regret. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. And here, here is is the real crowning judo move. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, you can't confess your regrets. You can't confess the the crap that's in your life. You You can't assimilate it and process it unless you can confess it. That which you own doesn't own you. But if you fail to own it, it will own you. That which you own does not necessarily own you when you take Jesus at his word. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then John finishes with one last sort of gut punch. But if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word's not in us. You see, to be fully human is to be able to embrace the regrets. The regret of of not starting something when you know you should have. Not investing in something when you know you should have. 
So I'm wondering for you what that investment looks like. Is it relational? Is it spiritual? Is it this year, the, the year you invest in your spiritual life? Is it this year? I had someone tell me they'd heard me say for 10 years, get your fingerprints on the Bible, and they finally did. They thought that was encouraging, but it pissed me off. <clears throat> I had my Bible in my hand, and it was like, it's all I could do to not go, bam! <laughs> Why did it take you so damn long? You know, what, what is it? What is it in, in your life that you haven't invested in? And so, so maybe, maybe what you need to do is you need to make a regret resume. All right? You need to make a regret resume. Give yourselves 30 minutes this week to sit down with a blank sheet of paper or a computer screen and simply start listing your regrets. What, what are all the regrets you have in life? Just list them out there. Don't restrict yourself. Don't try to, you know, just, just start, you know, just start going. And then once, once you, you feel like you've emptied yourself of all the vial in your life, and, and you're trying to separate yourself from that paper or that screen and thinking, oh, it's not me. And it's like, well, that's probably the second defense. You know, it's like one is denial, it didn't happen. And then, well, it's just not, that's just not me. It's not who I am. Well, actually, it is who you are. But once you get done, just pick five. Just pick five and focus on them. Focus on those regrets. You know, I, I was... Uh, for the longest time, I, I, you know, I don't know if you have these things in your life, but I have these small little things. They're not big. They're not just small little things. But I borrowed my college roommate's car to go to a football game. I lived in Waco, and I went to College Station. And, and so I was there, and the timing belt on his car broke. And so I called him and said, Larry, the timing belt on your car has broken. And he goes, well, take it to a shop and get it fixed. I said, well, I got to get back for class. And so I caught a ride back, and I left his car there, and I left him to deal with it. it at the time, it, it, it just seemed like it was his car, and, you know, he comes from a wealthy family, and, and I don't. And so, you know, it's like it, it, I had all kinds of excuses, but for the longest time in my life, that that bothered me. It just would float to the surface every now and then. Until one day I'm sitting at my computer and I start looking up Dr. Larry Hartley. And I, tra I track down where he's at. I find his address. You know, you can do that on the internet these days. <laughs> I know you're secure and you hide your stuff and everything, but uh, so I, and, and I write him a letter. And I sent him a check. And I said, man, I, I know this will not cover the, the, the disrespect that I showed you when I left your car in College Station. But I just want you to know that was, that was wrong. It was stupid. It was evil. It was just not right. It shouldn't have happened. And all I can do is acknowledge that right now confess it. 
I'm saying the same thing that God would say about that action to my friend. And I said, this check I know is, is nothing. But please, accept it as, as my offer of confession of that sin. You see, when you have those regrets that come up, there's usually something behind it, and, and there can be things that can be dealt with. Things that you can go after, that you can do something about. For those of you that have come through an addiction recovery type program, you know what I'm talking about in terms of making amends. You see, when you get those regrets out in front of you, it, it, it's the first step to being able to overcome some of this foundational regret stuff. When you get it out in front of you and you realize, wow, um, I need to start doing this. And here's why I don't do that. Here's why I eat too much. Here's why I exercise too little. Here's why I spend too much money. Here's why I don't save. Here's why I don't exert myself at work. Here's why I don't attempt to achieve. Here's, here's why. And when I begin to process those by developing a, a regret resume... I get an opportunity to come face to face with that stuff. And it changes me. It changes me from the inside out. But the beauty of this is that we have this promise. Jesus says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is this space in which when we become helpless to all that crap in our lives and we become hopeful toward Someone who left heaven, came to earth, lived and died and rose again. And he died in our place. When we begin to accept the, the privilege of being his child, the space in which we focus in on our regrets is a safe space. Because he will not let us go. He will not let us go. We Are his children. We have begun trusting that what he says is true. And trust means to act on it. And so we're moving toward those regrets, willing to confess if necessary, willing to be justified by him and not us. And in that safe space, those regrets shape our future, not control it. Because he holds on to us all the way through. Let's pray. Father, um, we are grateful for the, the love that you show us, the, the, the practical tools that you give us in this life, tools that allow us to... Um, to stare straight in the face of our past and to not be afraid of it, to not be controlled by it, but to be able to take those things and confess them. To be able to acknowledge what happened and understand that your love doesn't change. 
Your grace doesn't change. That as your children, we have the great privilege of being in a very safe place. When we start messing with those very dangerous pieces of our life that are painful, they still hurt, they still create emotion and doubt and confusion in our life. But at the same time, it's when we trust you to face those things. We gain the power to overcome them. Not just the emotion, Father. We thank you for, for, for that. We can overcome the emotion, but, but we can also gain the power to, to move in a totally different direction. It's as if you unlock the handcuffs of our past and set us free on a different path. Thank you for that simple truth that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Even that which we, we, we've forgotten, that we don't even, we, we don't even remember. Father, you, you completely wipe our slate clean and give us the opportunity to start investing in the right things in life. So Father, we're just thankful this morning for what you've done. And pray in Jesus' name, amen.